0: Welcome back, guys, to the JPS Podcast. We're here with Greg Knuckles, owner of Stronger by Science, which is possibly one of the best online resources for the thinking lifter, where Greg has eloquently bridged the gap between the science and folk in the gym who lift. And he's a very knowledgeable dude with an exercise science degree. Um, He's also extremely familiar with the heavy iron and quite an accomplished power lifter and has just released his own research review called Mass., with Eric Helms and Mike Zordos, which is a superb resource for training nerds like myself. And it's, (laughs) it's safe to say that Greg's, in my opinion, one of the great thinkers in the industry, and I'm honored to have him on the podcast. So welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me. Not a problem, man. And today I wanted to discuss, as I'm sure you probably guessed, all things strength. And my first question to you, Greg, is in regards to the rise in popularity of powerlifting. So is this rise in popularity simply a matter of exposure via social media? And what do you think has contributed the most to this?
1: I think, I think social media is a lot of it. Um, not just social media, but like the internet as a whole. So, um, some avenues other than social media is, uh, is YouTube considered social media? I don't think it is. But a lot of people kind of treat it as such and, like, you just get, get to know, like, frequently comments on their favorite YouTuber. Uh, but, yeah, so I don't consider YouTube social media, but powerlifting has gotten really big on YouTube. Um, and it's also gotten really big on Reddit, which I don't fully consider social media. Um, kind of like the, the default mode of exercise on, like, the big fitness subreddit is, like, powerlifting. <laughs> Style training. So I think uh, I think the internet as a whole, uh, social media, and, and other platforms, uh, has contributed a lot to the rise of powerlifting. And I also think that CrossFit has a lot to do with it. Both right. both powerlifting and weightlifting. Because mm. um, I mean, social media existed, and obviously the internet itself existed um, for for quite a while before powerlifting really started taking off. If you look to see when uh, membership numbers in powerlifting and weightlifting federation started really ballooning, it was 2012, 2013, 2014, uh, which is around the time CrossFit started getting really, really big as well. Um, so I think CrossFit has a lot to do with it as well because uh, I mean, it's done very, very well for itself, and it introduces people to squat, bench, deadlift, snatch, clean and jerk, mm-hmm. and then you know people who decided they liked lifting heavy things more than competitive <laughs> exercising. Like, hey, why don't I, do I? I I say that kind of cheek because, like, powerlifting also competitive exercise, mm-hmm. but it's competitive kind of easier exercise (laughs) (laughs)
0: for sure (laughs) i I think i think uh crossfit um deserves a lot of the credit as well awesome awesome yeah i never i've never really thought about the influence of crossfit uh would have had but it definitely makes sense and with the rising popularity of powerlifting there's obviously a lot of people that want to get into the sport and improve their squat bench dead to you know get a bigger total all the rest of it so what's your advice for a beginner looking to get into powerlifting uh in terms of getting stronger
1: biggest thing is if you can either find a coach to work with in person um like i i always recommend in person coaching over online coaching so don't think this is like me shilling my coaching services Uh, Try to find an in-person coach to work with Mm -hmm. and barring that uh, if there's not a powerlifting coach in your area you can work with, um, find a crew of lifters to train with. Ideally, people who are already pretty strong and have been in the sport for a while and know what they're doing. But honestly, I think for most people, even if your training partners aren't necessarily that much more experienced and more knowledgeable than you, I think uh, just having training partners is really valuable. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, even if you don't know much and they don't know much, just having that extra set of eyes is really useful. Um, you'll have someone to chat with, to bounce ideas off of, learn the sport together. Uh, or, again, even better if, if they've been in the sport for a while and they can kind of show you the ropes. Um, and also, most most people, just kind of from what I've observed, uh, tend to actually no, it's not just what I've observed. Like there's plenty of research supporting this. Um, exercising <clears throat> of any sort with uh, other people that tends to uh, increase your adherence and consistency more than flying solo, um, both because it increases enjoyment and also because there's uh, someone else who you're at least like informally accountable to. You know, your bro wants you to come lift with him because if nothing else, he needs a spotter and he doesn't have some rando at the gym. Um, So yeah, like those, those would be my first, my first like big piece of advice. Either find a coach, find a crew to train with or find a lifting partner. Um, And then past that first thing, make sure your technique is solid. Um, It's, it's a lot easier to learn good technique on the front end, than to learn bad technique and then have to unlearn it and change it. Um, And it's probably just also safer. Uh, Like injuries happen, but if you've been training three or four years and have an injury Mm. at that point, you're already invested in the sport. You bought into the process. It's going to suck, but you're probably, you know, you're, you're going to, you're gonna still be there when the injury gets better. If you've been training three months and have an injury, uh, a lot of those people just completely fall off the wagon. So uh, make sure you're, you're learning technique early on so you can lift safely and, you know, be able to put enough time in that you're really invested in the sport before uh, kind of the inevitable first injury strikes.
0: And with advanced lifters, um, you wrote a brilliant piece on the a different way that we can fix technique with advanced lifters. So obviously skill mastery is one of the you know big components to building strength. And you spoke about the method of amplification of error. And can you explain to the listeners what this is for uh, a, ter- a means of improving technique and how we can apply that as advanced lifters?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. So basically... Trying to think of the order in which to tackle this. Okay, so essentially uh, method of amplification of error is um, is the, the idea that for correcting technique, uh, obviously the first step is to become aware that you're making a technique error. And then from there, there's, there's essentially two ways you can go about correcting it. Either you can become aware of the error and then just try to not make the error anymore. Um, which like obviously for, for your heavy sets, that's, that's what you should be doing. But in terms of like quote unquote technique work, um, another, uh, another method you can use to try to correct that technical error is to actually like amplify it. So for example, if your weight shifts too far forward on your foot, when you're squatting, um, you could intentionally squat with the weight really far forward on your foot. Um, or if the bar tends to drift away in front of you when you deadlift, like set up to deadlift with the bar like three inches in front of your shins to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, just stuff like that. And the, the basic idea behind that is that uh, technique is both a conscious and subconscious process. Um, and for people who already have like a, a decent mastery of the technique, it's more subconscious. Um, it's... It's your, your nervous system, your central nervous system, coordinating muscle contraction to, like, bring about the desired effect. And there may be, like, one or two cues you're focusing on, but most of that is just, like, a subconscious process ordered by your central nervous system. So the idea underpinning uh, method of amplification of error is essentially uh, if you make, like, you're making this technique error in the first place, um, cause essentially like your nervous system doesn't quite realize. And, and so I'm, I'm, uh, personifying your central nervous system, obviously like it's not a, a human being, but just, just to make the description easier. Um, essentially like you're not screwing up enough for your nervous system to, mm-hmm. to fully realize how detrimental that mistake is. So by amplifying that mistake, you're giving more feedback to your nervous system about the negative motor consequences mm-hmm. of, of making whatever technique error this is. So by so like if if this is good technique and this is horribly bad technique, and you're typically like here, so decent but not as good as it could be. If you uh, do some practice like here, closer to bad technique, that will better make. Like closer to good technique um, and also it, it helps um just increase conscious awareness of the technique error as well so um, if it's something that you didn't necessarily feel when you were doing this but maybe your training partner pointed it out to you or you uh, picked up on it when you were watching video later uh it helps you become both more consciously and subconsciously aware of the mistake itself how it feels and the motor consequences of it. So then, when you're uh, when you go back to
0: focusing on lifting with good technique, you can better compensate and avoid that motor error. Right. That's that's awesome. And obviously, there's a distinction to be made there that you know beginners should practice with near perfect technique over you know the course of years. And this is a tool for advanced uh, lifters that have that subconscious, you know, movement pattern that's ingrained. Have you, ex- cause it's quite a novel area of study. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think there's only two studies that have been, uh, done on this. Have you used it in practice?
1: Yeah, I've, so I've been doing this forever yep. and I thought it was just kind of like a, a weird thing that I did. Um, and there's like just now starting to be research on it. But yeah, like warming up to squat, uh, you know, with just, like, one or two plates on the bar, I just squat in, like, really weird ways, and I just kind of... Uh, <laughs> and not nec- not necessarily, like, characteristic ways that I would mess up the lift. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I'll kind of do, like, Cossack squats with, like, 135 on my back, um, like, push all of my weight to one leg, push it to the other leg, squat with the weight way back on my heels, squat with the weight forward on my toes, like intentionally good morning, some squats up, um, let my knees cave in like just a little bit, not, not to like a dangerous Mm -hmm. degree, but, um, you know, just, and I I have personally found that when I do stuff like that, when I'm warming up, Mm -hmm. then when I get some serious weight on the bar and I'm actually like trying to squat with good technique, everything just feels crisper. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's something I've been doing personally forever and just kind of thought it was, uh, like a
0: weird quirk I had. yeah. That's awesome, that's awesome. And something that obviously affects our performance in the gym is stress and lifestyle factors. So can you talk about how stress impacts work capacity and what athletes should be doing to minimize stress outside of training and your general thoughts around that?
1: Uh, yeah, so stress so psychological stress at least um, can definitely negatively influence um, recovery from training so a 2014 I believe study by a researcher named Stoltz kalaneman um, looked at recovery from a relatively different difficult lower body workout in uh, I believe it was untrained lifters stratified by Um, both perceived and objective measures of stress, so they looked at uh, both like how stressed out the the participants felt, uh, and then also if they had um, like stressful events going on in their lives. So, you know, parent died, a significant other broke up with them, like those would be kind of like extreme examples of um, stressful life events. So they compared people who had both high subjective and objective measures of stress to people with low objective and subjective measures of stress, uh, had them do, I believe it was eight sets of like 10 to 12 reps on the leg press with like 80 ish percent, one rep max, something like that. Uh, and looked to see, uh, like soreness, perceived exertion, and also, uh, like force output, so, you know, actual performance recovery. Uh, I think it was 2, 24, 48, 72, and 96 hours after training. And the low stress group, after, again, like a pretty hard training session for completely untrained lifters, uh, they, were, they were back to baseline in terms of force output 48 hours later. Wow. Uh, soreness was relatively low. Perceived exertion was, or uh, perceived recovery was pretty high. Um, so, yeah, they, they were still a little sore and didn't feel fully recovered, but force output had, full, had fully recovered for eight hours later. Versus the high stress group, it took them 96 hours for force output to get back to baseline. So uh, the recovery period was twice as long, and also they were sore and had um, lower perceived recovery at every time point measured. So yeah, it, um, it can it can make a pretty meaningful impact. Uh, in terms of recovery from training now what you can actually do to minimize that I I used to think I used to think this was more in your control than I do now uh, so um, just like the athletes kind of innate psychology um, impacts that a fair amount so some people are just naturally more resilient and stress resistant than others and um, like, to use kind of non-scientific terms, like, type B people tend to perceive things as less stressful than, mm-hmm. like, A people do. Uh, so, And that, that it does seem to be uh, largely an innate psychological characteristic that is somewhat malleable, but not incredibly malleable. Um, and then also, like, just objectively stressful life events going on. Like, that's going to be moderated through your, your psychological makeup. But you can't necessarily uh, – you're, you're not necessarily in control of, like, when you get stressful assignments at work or when a family member dies or something like that. Like, you, you can't control that. And mm-hmm. stuff like that uh, is, is going to cause more stress than just kind of day-to-day stressful things, like maybe having to sit in traffic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there is a fair amount of stress that, that is uh, – either entirely or mostly outside of your control. Um, but there is stuff that, that is within your control that you can do. So one is sleep more. Uh, you you per, In terms of perceived stress, you perceive things as less stressful when you're well-rested. Um, and taking up some form of uh, meditation can help with that as well. Um, so I don't... Meditation research is something that I'm not into enough to, to be able to say what like the best form of meditation is for alleviating stress. But most of the research I've read looks at mindfulness meditation. Mm. So um, if, you, if you constantly feel stressed or if there's just a lot of stressful stuff going on in your life and you want to uh, work at um, uh, decreasing how stressful you find the things going on in your life, Uh, I'd recommend looking into mindfulness meditation. Uh, Again, it's not going to be like a completely night night and day difference, but it it definitely
0: can uh, have a beneficial effect. Awesome, awesome. And obviously, there's so much individual uh, variation in terms of how this will influence somebody's training. And specifically, when we're looking at peaking for powerlifters, what are some of the you know, big individual differences that you see influencing tapering and peaking for the platform? The big, so
1: the two, the two things that have the biggest impact in my experience is one, just simply how strong someone is Mm -hmm. and two, their training volume leading up to the peak. Um, And then also uh, independent of those two things, uh, sex, seems to have an impact on that as well. So in general, weaker people and people who've been training with lower volume leading up to their peak don't need to reduce volume as much for their peak and don't need to taper for as long. Um, And that applies like doubly so for women. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the the female powerlifters I work with tend to be able to train pretty hard up to meet week. And maybe like their taper starts on Sunday or Monday of meet week, um, and they're completely recovered and ready to go on the platform. Um, Weaker men taper generally, if it's starting a week and a half out, they're fine on the platform. Um, Stronger dudes may take up to, you know, two weeks to taper and then one week of deload before training. So uh, the total amount of time required. Uh, kind of on the high end, about three weeks total. Uh, so that would be like generally one week of still high intensity but reduced volume, one week of slightly lowered intensity and volume, and then one deload week uh, of, of, slight, of pretty dramatically decreased both in intensity. Um, so that would be kind of like on, on the one end. Um, so like it, when I compete, that's what I do. Um, I'll generally I'll generally hit my openers and sometimes second attempts, uh, two weeks out, one week out. I'm still lifting 85 ish percent, but for pretty low volume. Mm-hmm. And then the week of the meet itself, I'm still getting in the gym and training, but we're talking like triples at 60 percent. So mostly just to keep the patterns fresh, keep everything moving. Um, so that most. I would, I would assume everyone listening to that podcast, that's kind of like the most extreme taper and peak you would need. Versus someone who like maybe it's their first meet, they've only been training for a few months, they're really not all that strong yet. They're, they simply can't induce enough stress in their body that they need a long, like a super long time to recover from it. Generally at that point, hitting your deadlift opener Maybe maybe two weeks out, just deadlifts, hard deadlifts are always hard to recover from. Yeah. So maybe deadlift opener two weeks out, squat opener about 10 days out, bench opener about a week out, and then again, after that point, kind of shut down hard training, uh, doubles, triples, 60%, 70%, easy stuff rolling into the meat. So awesome. uh, kind of on the two extreme ends of that spectrum. Now, in terms of sex influence... That was my next they, question. <laughs> there are like legit, some women who like don't like no matter what you throw at them, they're ready to go again the mm. day later. Uh, so a kind of uh, amusing study, and I say I say amusing because like I'm I'm almost positive the authors like disagreed with their conclusions, but like you have to give <laughs> the, conclusions that the data support. Um, they took. They took people, I believe, with with some degree of training experience, so not like high-level lifters, but people who, who'd been training for a few years, um, and had them do a pretty hard bench workout. I want to say it was like six to eight sets of eight to ten reps or something like that. Um, so they they maxed before the workout. They did that workout, and then they maxed again uh, four hours later, a day later, two days later, three days later, something like that. Um and it, there were men and women in it, and the men, on average, um, their one rep max had recovered two to three days later. Mm-hmm. The women, on the other hand... Uh, Don't say four after, hours. after. Yes, four hours later. <laughs> oh, well. One rep max they hit four hours after that workout was not significantly different from the pre-workout one rep max they hit. So the authors had to write in the... Uh, <laughs> Their conclusions: women should rest at least four hours between bench wow. press, and like you know, good and well, that's that's not what they yeah. actually but like. That's what the data said, uh, and that that is really not all that uncommon. Mm. I, I, that that's kind of. I've definitely but seen yeah.
0: that in practice.
1: Women women tend to be able to tolerate higher volumes and also recover quite a bit quicker than men can. Um, so. Just for, for any given level of competitiveness, women tend to require um, about half a week shorter taper than men do, kind of on average, from what I've seen.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Some really good insight there, and that study is that study's something I'm definitely going to have a read into. And in terms of these you know, sex differences, obviously estrogen and testosterone are the big players that everyone uh, automatically looks to when comparing men and women. Why are women uh, more tolerant of volume? Uh,
1: Seems to have a lot to do with estrogen. Um, So there have been studies looking at muscle damage and recovery from training in women uh, in different phases of the menstrual cycle. So when estrogen is higher versus when it's lower. Uh, And in the phases of the menstrual cycle, when uh, estrogen is lower, um they tend to have more muscle damage in response to eccentric exercise and take longer to recover uh, force output after training uh and, and also estrogen itself just in terms of in vitro work um seems to be a relatively potent anti-inflammatory and also help just protect the muscles from damage so uh it seems like a lot
0: of it has to do with estrogen mm-hmm. Awesome. And in terms of athletes and coaches determining what accessory work uh, their competitors need, is it simply a matter of addressing weak points, or you know, directed adaptation? Like, what are some things you look to when you're determining what accessories should be used and when? Uh,
1: the first thing I look at is whether accessories are really needed in the mm-hmm. first place, and um, I don't use nearly as much accessory work with my lifters as I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, what I tend to gravitate towards more now is just variations of the core lift. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, let's say someone has lockout issues in the bench press, I could have them do, uh, you know, direct tricep work or something like that. Uh, and that—that's a couple years ago. That's—that's that's what I would tend to lean towards. Um, now I tend to lean towards more like tricep dominant pressing exercises. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe like close grip incline, maybe just regular close grip bench, maybe bench with chains to overload the top movement. Um, maybe board press, generally not board press all that much, but that, that would be another, another option. Um, so, yeah, I, I tend to lean more towards variations in the core lift now mm. for for two reasons. Um, one, actually, no, I guess it's just one main reason. It, 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 it kind of lets... Right? So, it lets... It's, it's still working the same general motor pattern that you're interested in, while also addressing that weakness that you want to address. Um so, yeah, I think... I think that that's generally a better way to go about it. When I do go with just pure accessory work, like kind of isolation, bodybuilding exercises, or or things that don't have uh, necessarily like a direct carryover, so maybe like pull-ups, rows, something mm-hmm. like that, um, It more often than not, that tends to just be for people who tend to get banged up if they have too yeah. high of a volume with the, with the core lifts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if... Uh, if someone's hips get banged up, if they squat too frequently, mm-hmm. uh, if they have weak quads, you know, then then maybe they'll I'll have them do like hack squat or leg press or lunges or step ups or something like that for extra quad work. Uh, but kind of my default would be like Paul's tie bar squats or something like that mm-hmm. instead.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome and. Muscle damage is something that you've spoken about quite a lot, and this was a question I've been wanting to ask you for a while. So you wrote an article, Grow Like a New Lifter Again, and when I did a podcast with Ian McCarthy a few weeks back uh, on muscle damage, I went back and read all of your work on this, and you mentioned at the top you had a cliff that this article was due for an overhaul. So. Is there any particular reason why it's true for an overhaul? Has your opinion and stance on muscle damage and hypertrophy changed?
1: No, it's mostly because people are idiots and they didn't like properly interpret the article. So um, essentially what I was presenting in the article was less of like a, this is how you should train, more of just like a, here's an interesting idea that may be worth a shot. But... I guess people don't like fully understand the English language all that well, and they mm-hmm. took it as saying, like, oh, this this is what Greg recommends. Uh, so I need to go back and rewrite it just to make sure that people don't come away with that interpretation, um, which is one reason I haven't really gotten around to doing it. So like updating an article, like adding more studies, like that. Mm-hmm. that's something that's fun and exciting to me, but just like updating an article to save people from themselves yeah. because reading time. <laughs> skills suck yeah that's that's something i don't particularly enjoy doing (laughs) Um, like i know i know as a writer that's that's partially on me because i i need to like read it kind Mm -hmm. of through the eyes of of a of a reader and see like how could this be interpreted like how confident am i that people are going to come away from this with the correct interpretation so i know it's partially on me i've also i've also like read read it through like quite literally to, to see why people are coming away with yeah. this idea and whatever their reading comprehension skills suck. So anyway, um, that that's, that's the main thing. So I think mostly, um, okay, <laughs> let me just backtrack for people listening to this who haven't read that article. So, um, in terms of muscle growth, um, there's, we, we aren't 100% positive what bottlenecks muscle growth. So, why, why don't you just keep growing forever? Right? Because that would, that would be great. It would be amazing. Uh, but, but obviously, you know, you build muscle pretty easily for a while, then it becomes a little bit harder, and then it becomes really hard. And then eventually, people just stop building muscle. So, uh, the, que- the question is like why does that happen? Uh, what What is the limiting factor there? And it, it doesn't seem to be uh, just like basic muscle protein kinetics, so muscle protein synthesis, muscle protein breakdown. We don't have a ton of data on super well-trained people, but from what we've seen so far, uh, muscle protein breakdown really isn't all that exciting. Uh, it's... Uh, like its rate increases when you're in an unfed state, it decreases when you're in a fed state. Uh, doesn't really vary all that much. So peak muscle protein breakdown is something like a quarter or less, maybe like a 10th, something like that, like a relatively small percentage of peak muscle protein synthesis and doesn't seem to vary all that much between individuals unless you're like under bed rest or something like that. And muscle protein breakdown increases a lot. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of muscle protein synthesis, uh, res- the MPS response to protein feeding seems to be relatively consistent with training. And then in terms of muscle protein synthesis response to a training session, mm-hmm. it does, uh, like total muscle protein synthesis does decrease as training status increases. Uh, But in terms of of area under the curve, so total muscle protein synthesis elevation over baseline after a training session, uh, once people have some training experience, it seems like area under the curve is roughly a third to a half of what it is for untrained people, which like obviously that's not what you see in the real world when you're looking at actual muscle growth itself. So if you've been training for several years... You're not building muscle at half the rate you were when you were a brand new lifter. You're building muscle quite a bit slower than that. Um, so it, it could be that when we have more data on really well-trained people, it does turn out that maybe muscle protein synthesis does like really decrease with a lot of training experience. Mm-hmm. Maybe muscle protein breakdown starts increasing as people become more well-trained. But right now, uh, I, I don't believe there's evidence of that. So the other thing, which which I think is more likely at this point, uh, that could bottleneck muscle growth, is um, the myonuclei of your muscles. Mm-hmm. So essentially, muscle fibers are single cells, but they're kind of unique cells in that they're multinucleated. Um, I, I think there are only one of two cells cell types in your body that is multinucleated. I believe one of your larger immune cells is multinucleated as well, but anyways, uh, <laughs> as opposed to most cells in your body that only have one nucleus, uh, muscle fibers are single cells that have a lot of nuclei in them, uh, and essentially, those nuclei can, uh, for lack of a better term, like oversee and regulate a given volume of uh, sarcoplasm, which is the stuff inside a muscle fiber. So all of your cells have cytoplasm. And sarcoplasm is just the particular name for cytoplasm inside of muscle fiber, um, and so it seems like each each myonucleus, each muscle nucleus, can oversee and, and regulate a given volume of sarcoplasm. Uh, and once once um, there's there's a limit, like. It an upper bound on how much sarcoplasm they can oversee and regulate. Mm-hmm. And once uh, once a muscle fiber gets to the size that all of the myonuclei are at what's called their myonuclear domain limit, uh, the fiber just stops growing. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that point, either muscle growth isn't going to continue occurring or you need to uh, get more nuclei for that muscle fiber from the surrounding satellite cells, and um, we we see some evidence for like how much uh, myonuclear accretion can matter for muscle growth. So, for example, we see that myonuclear accretion is much faster for newer lifters and more advanced lifters, which may partially explain why they can build muscle quicker. Uh, we know that. Anabolic steroids dramatically increase myonuclear accretion. Uh, obviously, they help with muscle growth as well, uh, beyond like natural limits of muscle growth. So that seems to be an important thing as well. And uh, the the concept of of muscle memory. So you know you you've trained before, you've built quite a bit of muscle. Then maybe you have to take six months out of the gym for whatever reason. You lose a lot of muscle. But if it took you five years to build that muscle initially, maybe after six months out of the gym, all of that muscle has come back in two months or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, that's because you still have those those myonuclei there. They're what direct protein synthesis, ribosome biogenesis, all of that stuff. And if they're already there and they have they're overseeing currently small myonuclear domains. They can essentially ramp up all of those processes to get back to myonuclear domain limits pretty quickly, which is why you can rapidly rebuild muscle that's lost with detraining. Um, so yeah, from from all of those lines of evidence, we can see that um, uh, myonuclear accretion is is certainly important for hypertrophy. Uh, and we also have some evidence that myonuclear accretion increases with muscle damage. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of the idea here being that you have these satellite cells, which are just other cells surrounding muscle fibers. Um, but before, but like they need to donate their nuclei to the muscle fiber itself. Um, like that's what increases uh uh, myonuclei count in, in the muscle fiber and it seems those satellite cells are more predisposed to donating their their nucleus to the muscle fiber if the muscle fiber is damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, it, kind of the general idea being that those extra nuclei are uh, kind of called for and required to ramp up the um, the, re- the repair response mm-hmm. uh, to some sort of damaging stimulus. And so the idea I laid out in this article is that with increased training experience, muscle damage decreases. And to a point, decreased muscle damage is a beneficial thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not sore after training, you can train more frequently, you can handle more volume, et cetera. All good things. But The idea I put forward is that potentially with enough training experience, muscle damage becomes so low that you're not able to adequately Mm. add myonuclei to the muscles, uh, and that may be what eventually limits muscle growth. So the idea I put forth is essentially like if you've hit a hard growth plateau, like nothing you're doing is really like meaningfully adding muscle to your frame anymore, maybe taking two or three weeks out of the gym, which... Mm -hmm. It's not going to be enough to make you lose a lot of muscle. is isn't going to be enough that you like meaningfully lose strength, and what you do lose will come back pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, but it may resensitize your body to further muscle damage, which may then help you fuse a, more, a few more myonuclei, help you grow a little bit more. So the title itself, Grow Like a the New Lift.
0: The clickbait L-, games. <laughs> it,
1: was, it was a hyperbolic title. Oh, it's <laughs> good. So It was more like mechanistically Grow yeah. Like a New lift. Yeah. because doctors <laughs> easily use more myonuclei, and so basically like, hey, here, here may be a potential way to reopen this, this avenue of muscle growth, um, but yeah, so I presented it as kind of like speculative, yeah. so like, here's the evidence we have, here is something that may potentially work, but I never like mm. absolutely claimed that it did work or said that everyone should do it, anyway.
0: That, that's how I interpreted it anyway. Um, Good, because you're an <laughs> human being. I appreciate that. Um, so obviously muscle growth slows down significantly when we advance through our training career and little tips and tricks like this can help resensitize us to you know, building more muscle. But in terms of strength, obviously strength gains slow down significantly throughout the course of our uh, lifting career. What are some strategies that advanced lifters when they really start to see their strength plateau uh, implement to overcome this? What would be like Greg's one top two tips for building improving strength when you hit those nasty plateaus?
1: Honestly, I don't have any. Like you just you just have to keep grinding away at it. Suck so up. some <laughs> Like I I find that people tend to fall in one of three baskets when they start hitting strength plateaus. One group of people, it's not like a true plateau, it's just their strength gains have slowed down dramatically and they just keep plugging away and keep getting stronger slowly but surely. Uh, I've got a client like this right now. He, He is the most consistent person I've worked with, both in terms of how he executes his training and in terms of his results. So, like, we, we started working together probably, like, four years ago. Mm. And initially, like, he made really fast strength gains. But for, like, the last two years, he's been making gains so slowly <laughs> but so consistently. Yeah. Like, he competes every three <laughs> months. And at every meet, um, he PRs his bench by two and a half kilos every other meet. You, uh-huh. can, you <laughs> can, And he PRs his squat... Two and a half kilos every meet, and he alternates between PRing his deadlift, two and a half kilos and five kilos. Right. Like it it has been perfectly consistent, (laughs) competing every three months for two years now. And so like through that process, he's gotten a lot stronger, but he's been getting, like, kind of on any like short to moderate turn Mm. type scale, he's been getting stronger very slowly. But over the past two years, like it's added up to a lot. Um, so, you know, if, if you're someone who, uh, who like either tries to PR too frequently or who tries to go for, you know, five, 10 kilo PRs all the time, uh, he's someone who like, if you were doing that, it would look like he would be plateaued for like six months at a time. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you're trying to uh, PR your bench five kilos at a time. Uh, he puts five kilos on his bench a year consistently. Yeah. It would look like his bench was plateaued for a year, but it's still like mm. consistently stronger. Um, so yeah, some people aren't truly plateaued. They're still making you know slow but steady, consistent strength progress. But either they're trying to PR too frequently, so they feel like they're at a plateau, or they try to hit too big of PRs, so they can't hit the little PRs that are on the table. Uh so that's that's one group of people. One another group of people, and this is this is so frustrating, this is like the group I fall into. Yeah. my my strength will be completely plateaued. Not not changing at all for like two or three years. And then just out of nowhere I'll add eighty pounds <laughs> in my total. Like I don't know I don't know why. Yeah. Like nothing meaningful seems to have changed all that much. Uh, it does it does tend to coincide with times that I'm sleeping better, but in terms of like training variables. Yeah. 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 Like like nothing'll happen and then just poof I wake up one day and I'm just, <laughs> I don't know. That's, That's so, frustrating. But I, I've seen this happen with enough people that I know I'm not alone in this. Like yeah. you just keep grinding away, you keep plugging away, and then just one day you wake up and your body's like, Alright, time to get strong again. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, like, no no secrets there. It's just a matter of putting in work consistently and just kind of <laughs> waiting it out. Patience. Of yeah. And then the last thing is some people, and, and this is unfortunate, but it seems like some people just kind of get to a point where their body's like, nope, fuck you. You're not going to get any strong. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, yeah.
0: <laughs> There's not the, so much you can say about that.
1: Like, i I've worked with, with a few clients like this where you know we work together for a year or two. They make pretty consistent progress. They start hitting the plateau. Uh, we just kind of plug away for a while. Nothing really happens. We make some adjustments. Nothing really happens. We make more adjustments. Nothing really happens. They make big adjustments on their end with diet or sleep or stress management or something. Nothing really happens. <laughs> and then... At that point, it's just kind of like how how you interpret that, like what you do with it. Um, you know, are you just like, okay, I'm fine with being this strength and I still enjoy training and I'm going to stick with it? Mm. Or is it kind of like, you know, I'm sort of strong at this point, but I'm never going to be a world champion, so what is the point? Mm-hmm. I, find, I find that not many people kind of fall into that second category, but some do. And yeah, like sometimes... I think I think there for everyone, there is just kind of a, a level of strength that your body, that kind of like circumscribes like the top end of how strong you can get. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a matter of, of how you get there. So some people, it's, you know, slow and steady and they get there at some point. Some people gain strength pretty quickly and consistently up to that point, mm-hmm. hit it, that's it. And then... Yeah, and some people it's just kind of like start and stop super nonlinear and yeah. eventually their crap craps out on them. So awesome. yeah. I don't I don't really think there's that much of a secret though. Just yeah. Just keep plugging away at it. Mm-hmm. And if you are like truly at a plateau and you've been plugging away at it for a while, change your training. Yeah. I don't think there's I don't think there's like one surefire way that's going to break you out of it. Maybe it's more volume, maybe it's more intensity, yeah. maybe it's a larger variety of exercises, but just change something, uh, definition of insanity, doing the same yeah. thing over and over expecting different results. So change yeah. something.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant points. Brilliant points. I, I tend to see now a lot more, uh, relevance to those three groups that you said people fit into. And I can already start to see like, you know, where my clients are fitting, uh, within that. And something I wanted to ask you about to, before we wrap up this podcast, Greg, was In terms of platform performance and the psychology and arousals, uh, you know, surrounding going for a one-rep max, um, do you have much familiarity with the science behind arousal and how this affects performance and how we can maximize that when we're testing strength?
1: Uh, I mean, in terms of like primary literature, no. Um, Something that interests me, but something I've not put a lot of time into learning uh, I mean, most of what I know about it is just from classes in college, yep. um, where it seems like there's kind of like a, a curve where at the peak of the curve is optimal arousal mm-hmm. and optimal performance. On the left side of the curve is insufficient arousal, so you probably just don't put enough effort into it to get optimal performance. And on the right side of the curve is excessive arousal, mm-hmm. where... Um, like basically, you're either you psych yourself out, or you're you're just kind of so crazy that you can't uh, focus. Like, like technique goes out the window yeah. or something. Like that. Um. So actually, after I learned that in undergrad, I was like, "Oh, this is interesting. Let me like look for research on it." Sports psychology research is not all that good, right. and in terms of like. Um, when I found some review papers like discussing this phenomenon, and I looked up some of the papers they were citing, a lot of them were in rodent models, and a lot of them were on like uh, relatively simple tasks that may not have all that much relevance to sports performance. Um, so, you know, like like fine motor skills, like just with your hand or something like that. So, who knows? Maybe it's relevant to like professional gamers.
0: Uh,
1: which, like, in my experience, I do think that it, it has some validity. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. if you're insufficiently aroused, if you're, if you're not in it to win it with a one rep max deadlift, yeah. you're going to fail. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, you can't be too chill for a one rep max deadlift. Uh, so, I, I feel like that's almost self-evidently mm-hmm. true. In terms of excessive arousal, I've definitely seen some people psych themselves out and technique go out the window. Uh, but I kind of think for some people it's less of of that you know bell curve and more just like a straight line. Yeah. We're like, I, I I have this one friend, Josh, who like I I'm honestly afraid for him every time <laughs> he goes for a one rep max yeah. on any lift. Like he gets he gets these eyes that look he looks like a feral animal. Like he he is. Like, I think the only possible way he could become more aroused at that point is just like injecting a nearly full dose <laughs> of crystal. Like, but that's that's what it that's well, what it takes. I mean, the right. crazier he gets, the better he lifts. Yeah, yeah. So left side of the curve, insufficient arousal, decreased performance. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely, I feel like that's almost self evidently true. Then, in terms of arousal on the high end, I think it is kind of that bell curve for some people where, uh, you know, they, they need to be up and be aroused, but they psych themselves out or technique goes out the window if they get too aroused. Some people, I think it's just kind of more is better and I think it's just kind of a a different psychological style for those two groups of people.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And one of my uh, final questions for you is when are you going to write the ultimate guide to reverse grip bench press? (laughs) Sure. <laughs> man. Um,
1: okay, reverse grip bench press. Shed some light
0: on this. <laughs>
1: Here's what you need to know. So, it the only the only way it works is by shortening range of motion as much as possible. Uh, you can touch a reverse grip bench press probably like four inches lower on like your chest slash mm-hmm. stomach than uh, a regular bench press, and that's what. So my reverse grip bench press is about 30, 35 pounds above my regular bench press when I'm fat. (laughs) Like when I, when I lose, when I lose weight, it's like 30 pounds below. (laughs) Um, So like I, I reverse grip benched 485 and that was, um, I knew it was the day to do it because like, I just, I just eaten sushi and I really, (laughs) Really like soy sauce, yeah, and and so like that has a lot of sodium, makes you hold on to water. Plenty of uh, carbohydrate in the sushi makes you hold on to water, and soy sauce makes you thirsty. So I was drinking a ton. So like uh, I I actually wasn't that big. I was doing the meat at two forty two, and I was like two forty four or something like that mm-hmm. at the time. So it was pretty close to the meat, So I and I don't like I don't like big water cuts. So I really wasn't like that big relative to, to where I've been before, but I was incredibly bloated. Yeah. Like, uh, just like the kind of bloat where like you smile and you can tell your cheeks are like close yeah. up. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, okay, it's time, it's time for some reverse for benching. And, uh, so yeah, like it was pure. it was purely the bloat. Like I took plenty yeah. of time to warm up so I could get a big arch, uh, I could stick my stomach way out because I was super bloated, and it was it was glorious. It was the best bench. <laughs> had. Did everyone
0: um, did everyone lose their minds when they saw you go out and reverse group bench press?
1: Uh, some people were like, "Is that legal?" And I was like, <laughs>
0: "Yeah,
1: yes. like yeah, yeah. check the rule book first.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> but yeah, so uh, it works via reducing range of motion. Yeah, so touch uh, points is critical. If, yeah, if, if you don't have a really big arch, uh it's you're probably not gonna really get anything out of it. Mm. In terms of maximizing it, you need strong biceps. Um like and if you don't, you're probably gonna get biceps tendonitis from it. Cause it's like if you haven't done it before, you'll probably get like a pretty sick bicep pump from it, because it is like a super heavy isometric for your biceps. Yeah. Um and you need to make sure you arch a lot. Take the maximum legal width grip, and instead of gripping it with your hands, uh, instead of gripping it with your hands like this, like mm-hmm. straight out, you rotate your hands out like that so the bar sits kind of diagonally across your palm. Um, make sure the bar is sitting low enough in your hand that it's not going over this bone. If the bar is sitting right on this bone, you're going to hate life, yeah. and if it's too high in your hands, you have to cock your wrist back a mm. ton to for a bench properly and not drop the bar on yourself. So since you're cocking your wrist back so much, if it's sitting too high in your hands, it's going to cause a lot of wrist pain. Yeah. So it needs to be sitting low in your hands, diagonally across, so it goes mm-hmm. from here, just in between these two bones. Yeah. Um, so yeah, get tight, set the biggest arch possible, inflate yeah. your stomach as much as you're capable, take that maximum legal width grip, touch as low as you can, pop it right back up. Like, if, if you do it right, it'll feel like a two-board press.
0: I am so excited to give it a try. <laughs> and you, don't, the, you, don't, you don't look fat enough, man. If you're not...
1: <laughs> I, I, I
0: can get a bit of an arch, so we'll see how we go. I'm,
1: I'm in the process of trying to cut to 220 right now, and I I'm... Like I know at this point my reverse a bench is probably twenty pounds lower than my regular bench. Like it's yeah. It it is it is very much like an arch and fat dependent strategy. <laughs> like it's not it's not something most people are gonna get very much out of.
0: I'm gonna eat a lot of sushi, drink a lot of water, and I'll uh I'll give I'll check back in with you and let you know how I go. <laughs> All right, man. Best of luck. And the last question I have is you want silly looking traps, right? Yeah. So I, I would dare say that most of the male population are in with you on this one. They want those big Hulk-like traps. So how do you plan on achieving this outside of rack pools? Or are rack pulls the only uh, exercise that you're going to use to build those silly-looking traps?
1: I seem to get a lot out of snatch grip high pulls as well. Yeah, um, yeah that's about it. That's it. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think a lot of people waste their time doing too many shrugs. Um, there's actually some work showing, and this surprised me when I came across it. Uh, there's some work showing that your traps actually aren't your primary scapular elevator. Mm. That's your levator scapula. Um, so yeah, uh, shrugs, I never got much out of shrugs and I thought maybe I was just doing them wrong. Then I came across that and I was like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. Um, so I tend to find just for me personally, my traps don't seem to respond unless I kind of attack them relatively violently. Um, So, you know, super heavy block pulls, like that's just pulling down on them enough that something has to happen. It's uh, kind of like a forced eccentric slash heavy isometric slash weighted stretch. Um, And then snatch grip high pulls, it's, you know, kind of a violent movement and also like when the weight like hits you really hard at the bottom uh that feels like it gives
0: my traps like a really big stretch mm-hmm. when it when it hits before i reset for the next rep awesome so, so all those bros out there shrugging away take note <laughs> there's a better way I, mean, so,
1: I don't know i don't i don't have particularly huge traps yet those so um, here's here's kind of the irony. So like I do, I do care about the research a lot. I read a lot of research, and I know I know I I do know that soreness is not a valid indicator that yeah. something is effective uh, exercise. But also there aren't there aren't good studies on trap training. Yeah. That's not for for some com- completely strange reason. That's not what gets a lot of research funding. Like. <laughs> So I wonder why. So um, <laughs> I think you can take a super research-based approach to trap training. Yeah. So really, the only thing I, I you got I, I have use for my guide is like what makes my traps super sore. Yeah. Um, which I know is a bad indicator, but at least it is an indicator. It's something uh, correct. And so yeah. Above-the-knee rack pulls and snatch grip high pulls just wrecked my traps. So,
0: yeah, screw it. I'm going with them for a while. Awesome to hear, man. Greg, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Guys, we hope you enjoyed that podcast, learned a lot from Greg. If you did, make sure you like this video, subscribe to our channel, and we'll speak to you all next time. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Thanks for having me. Greg.